Well, here at the beginning of a new year, we begin our time in the Scriptures in one of the most crucial books of the entire Bible. That is, Exodus. Pastor and theologian Philip Graham Ryken rather memorably calls it an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. It's an adventure that takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadows of the Great Pyramids where there are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Sounds like something you'd see in a blockbuster, wouldn't it? He's right to point out just how memorable the story of Exodus is. Once you hear it, you never forget it. In our lifetime alone, Exodus has been the source of children's cartoons, swashbuckling action movies, and even the inspiration for great social change during the civil rights movement. Exodus is a profoundly dramatic story that has a deep impact on all who listen to its message. But it has an even more astounding central character. The God who is, was, and ever shall be. For all the ways that Exodus tells us a story about human liberation and redemption, all of that has meaning only because it comes from the God who names Himself, I am who I am. And as so, as we set ourselves against the bitter winds of yet another year, and as we enter yet another another stage of an already exhausting pandemic, and as we just barely hold on for hope in our socio-political scene, as it seems to unravel further and further into chaos and confusion, it's good for us and times of such uncertainty in our world to come to the ever-certain great I Am. And after all, this is what the core of the book of Exodus is all about. It's about a God who meets a lowly people and whatever self-made mess they've found themselves in. He is intent to free them from their slavery and from their sin. Sure to redeem them from their despair and from their death. And so Exodus is all about knowing this previously unknown God. It's about His gracious movement, not away from, but towards sinners and failures. It's about His coming into the lives of slaves and outsiders when they have nothing to offer in exchange. So it's no wonder then that Exodus looms large in the imagination of not only the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament apostles as well. They constantly refer back to the history of Exodus to make sense of our spiritual present. For the Israelites and the church alike, it shows us that God is a Redeemer. Both of people that are too powerless or too apathetic to save themselves. The point of all five books of Moses, Exodus being the second in that list, is that despite our hell-bent nature, God will be our God and we will be His people. No plague is too harsh 
and no covenant too narrow. No sea is too wide and no mountain too high. No pharaoh too wicked, no prophet too cowardly, no priest too idolatrous. The story of Exodus, which means, by the way, Exodus is a a great going out, is not merely that the enslaved go out of oppression. It tells us the story of a God Himself who goes out of His way to redeem people like us. And so after Genesis, the book of beginnings, what we've started reading in this new year so far in our, in our private and family devotional time, where God reveals Himself as a benevolent Creator and also a gracious Savior, we see His faithfulness continue to an unfaithful people. He chooses Abraham's family to bring about His good into the world when humanity chose to squander it all. But we've now reached a low point in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their contingency. Joseph's family has been enslaved in Egypt. Now, this is surprising for several reasons. First of all, I think, because Joseph, just a few generations prior, was the great Savior of Egypt and the known world. Here he was, a nobody that came as a prisoner into the land, and yet through his trust in the Lord and his wisdom for the people was able to save the entire known world from a soul-crushing famine. He and his brothers, we just read, came into Egypt with only 70 people. With all their extended family, children, wives, all that. And here, only a few short generations later, a few centuries later, they're not 70 any longer. They're 7 times 70 times 700 times 7,000. They've grown exponentially. And so it seems that the God who promised to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham that they would be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth has brought this promise to fruition. In Egypt of all places, through Joseph, a former prisoner of all people, truly God's promise for His people to fill the earth is coming to fruition. So they have filled the earth. But this story is about how they have not subdued it. In fact, quite the opposite. We read in verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And so we have this new and nameless king that has no memory of Joseph the great Savior of Egypt, and has even less memory of Joseph's God, the one who really saved Egypt. He has no recognition of God's servant, and he has no recognition of God's sovereign decree to to put Joseph in a place of such power in order to save life. So this king plans to rule in a totally different way. Not a Not a king that saves lives, but a king that takes them. And he sees the growth of God's people here as a threat. He doesn't use his power to save lives, to ensure the well-being 
of the people in his land, he uses that his power to crush them. And so in, in verses 9 and 10, we read how he conspires with the people of his land to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. He fears in a paranoid sense that they'll grow too powerful. They'll side one day eventually with some foreign power and plunder Egypt in all of its glory and, and, and leave the land a desolate mess. He's so scared of that happening that Pharaoh whips his people into a hateful frenzy against the Israelites who've done nothing wrong. And so the Egyptians rise up and oppress them and they force them into brutal, backbreaking labor for four centuries. And with this slavery, they beat the Israelites into submission, using them to, to build great economic powerhouses like Pithom and Ramesses. These great trade cities. In other words, while, while they make sure the Egyptian or the Israelites get poorer and more miserable, the Egyptians use their slave labor to enrich and empower themselves. Con totally opposite, totally contrary to how God rules in this world. Where He lifts up the lowly, the Egyptians have shown that they will put the lowly as far beneath them as possible. But what does verse 12 tell us? Despite Egypt, despite this nameless Pharaoh, and the merciless oppression, God's blessing cannot be stopped. Despite what's going on in the world, God's promises are not thwarted. The Israelites continue to grow. Let's take a step back as a church for a moment and think of the truth of this promise. Despite what's happening out there right now, God's blessing will not be thwarted. It may look like the Egyptians of our world today will oppress the people of God until they are no more. But when the blood of martyrs scatters all over the ground, what we find is the seed of a new church rising. And so we should take great hope, I think, as Christians, that God still works in the midst of suffering, in the midst of despair, in the midst of what seems to us to be death and lifelessness to bring new life into the world. This goes to show, I think, that no matter who's in charge, no matter what political regime is in power, no matter what economic situation seems to suggest, it is ultimately the Lord who rules the earth. And when Pharaoh works, the Israelites ruthlessly, when he makes their lives bitter with brick and mortar, when he saps any, any joy away by working them till they drop dead in the fields. When he thinks that he has all the power and all the authority. When in short, he thinks he's God. He works as if he's God. We find out that he's nothing, in fact, but an anti-God. A shadow of the King of Heaven. 
But here's the beautiful irony of chapter 1. Pharaoh, both here and from now on, and the story of Exodus, goes forever unnamed. Totally anonymous. Utterly forgotten. What kind of God is it that goes completely unknown throughout history? A pretty pitiful God, if you ask me. If He's so great in power and might, we don't even know His name here. Isn't that interesting? This this Pharaoh that no doubt is building great monuments to His glory, building an empire that's, that's named after Himself, is lost to human history. But do you know who is remembered? Even all these centuries later, three millennia later, do you know who is remembered? Shifra and Puah. These two women, Hebrew midwives, in other words, lowly people, have no power, no status, no authority. And many scholars think when the the term Hebrew is used here and other places in the Old Testament, it's meant to carry kind of a demeaning connotation to it. So, for example, when Potiphar's wife in the last chapters of Genesis falsely accuses Joseph of assault, she calls him a Hebrew. Meaning he's lesser. He's a, he's a Semitic wandering people. He's no good. And later in, in Israelites' history, when the Philistines are oppressing the Israelites in 1 Samuel, they sneeringly call these people that they're beating up and down in war, they call them Hebrews. Even in the book of Jonah, here's this yes man of, a, of a, uh, an evil king. When he is trying to, to run away from God and hide his guilty conscience before a bunch of pagan sailors while a storm whips about them caused by his own God, and they turn to him and say, is this your fault? Did you bring this upon us? He says, well, I'm just a, I'm just a lowly Hebrew. So it's interesting where this great you know, kind of vice presidential figure is now aboard a, a, a refugee ship and kind of covering himself. I'm just a Hebrew. I'm not. Oh, no, I'm not Jonah. I'm not the, I'm not the, the second in command and, and, uh, and Jeroboam's court. No, I'm just a wandering Hebrew. And so, here comes the king of Egypt. This supposedly high and mighty king coming to Hebrew women. In other words, women of no repute. Women that have no authority. Nothing that they can offer. That they can bargain with. They're simply servants and midwives. And his eyes, they're of such low ethnic and social standing that they should be honored that he would even address insects such as they. This man sees himself as a god among men, but ironically, he comes groveling to these Hebrew women, begging them to carry out the next phase of his already failed scheme. If he couldn't suppress the Israelites through his oppression of them, then maybe he can start to just kill them through their own people. So here he tries to co-opt these Hebrew women to kill any Israelite boys that are born. His first plan failed. 
discouraged them, decreased their morale so they stopped spreading. That didn't go far enough. So here he is plotting ethnic cleansing against these people. Kill any baby, murder any child that is born a male and is not an Egyptian. The sad truth of our world, folks, is that there are still many pharaohs out there today. There are many powers and principalities in our world that still work this way. The kings of this world are only interested in their own exaltation. Only interested in what they can get for them and their own tribe. And so this evil Egyptian king, paranoid that the Israelites will rise up against him, stirs his people up into enslaving them. And now he tries to recruit their own people to commit mass murder against them. And he commissions midwives of all people. People that are responsible for bringing life into this world. He commissions them to be his own agents of death. Folks, this is the ever-present danger of political and ethnic idolatry. Even in our world today, We Christians must refuse to listen to any Pharaoh who pits us against any image bearer of God. Because our King is the King of every nation and tribe and tongue and people. He comes to bring His blessing to all of mankind and any puny little Pharaoh that says, These people are good, but these people are bad is not a servant of the King of Kings. God meant for the Israelites to be priest to the world. To be a blessing even to the Egyptians, ironically. If only Pharaoh could have seen that. That he would have been more blessed than ever if he would have let the people of God, chosen by God, be a blessing to him and his nation. But the world doesn't want priests because they don't want the God of these priests. They want to be their own God. We want to be our own God. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Oh my goodness, how sick of that rhetoric I've become in this nation. Don't tell me what to do. Folks, this is the agenda of worldly politics. To seek after what's best only for me. To control others. To destroy life. To worship the self. And ultimately, to blaspheme the God who gives you life in the first place. I fear how often we get sucked into these Christless power games as Christians here in America. Who are constantly pressured to choose a new Pharaoh. To follow after this Pharaoh and this king. To to enthrone someone. To deify them. Why? So they can usher in their own self-serving and death-dealing regimes? Is that what we as Christians want to be known for? Empowering a bunch of Christless, godless Pharaohs in this land? It's almost as if we don't really believe the Gospel truth that Christ is Lord alone. Not Caesar, not Pharaoh, and not any president of any political party. Christ is King. 
But notice who does believe God's in charge. Not the man who thinks he's in charge. He doesn't believe that. These two lowly women know who's really in charge. These Hebrew midwives who risk it all. In verse 17, we read that they feared God, not the king of Egypt. They feared God. They worked to protect life, not to suppress it in order to save their own skin. Oh, that we might have this courage as Christians in this world to stand up for God's image bearers, to stand up for life for all people. To say that we have one King alone and His name is Jesus. And He comes to bless the world, not to condemn it. See, the pharaohs of this world find their power by finding different groups of people to condemn. And we get sucked into those games. We get sucked into that way of thinking. It's us against them. Paul tells us we don't wrestle against any flesh and blood. Black or white. Rich or poor. Young or old. Male or female. We don't wrestle against people. We wrestle against the gods of this world. The false gods of this world that try to tell us that people made in God's image, some of them are worth living and some of them are worth killing. That's who we wrestle against. The Pharaoh summons them in verse 18 to rage and scream. But they simply say they cannot stop it. These Hebrew women, they say, give birth too fast, too vigorously. They can't stop the life that God intends to come into this world. Now, plenty of scholars here say that, well, obviously, Shifra and Puah are being dishonest here. But are they? Does the Bible say that they are lying or deceiving? It actually doesn't say that. I think that shows our own skepticism and cynicism. That we think that, that it couldn't possibly be that God is allowing life to continue if Pharaoh says it's no good. Think about this. There, these are only two women after all. And there's hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of Israelites that they must serve. And even if they represent two heads of their guild, say they're at the top of the, the, the midwife guild, both of them. Who's to say that God does not thwart all of Pharaoh's plans by allowing these children, these male babies, to be born and swaddled and protected already before anybody can get there? I think we think that, oh, they must be deceiving. They must be lying. They must be tricking. Maybe not. Maybe God is just working in such a miraculous way. We don't know. But what we do know for sure, we read in verse 20, that God was good to the midwives. And He blessed His people. And their abundance of life continued. In fact, these midwives become a part of this blessing. Verse 21 says that they too had families. And so the God 
who came to Abraham and Sarah, childless as they were, and promised, your descendants will be as multiple as the stars and as multiple as the sands on the seashore. The same God who came to an old man and an old woman and made them the most prolific nation in the world is blessing even Shifra and Puah in the same way. Why? Because the God of Exodus, the God that liberates His people, is also the God of Genesis who calls life into being and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's the God who creates life and calls it good. He's the God who promises to redeem Adam and Eve who are nothing but willfully disobedient to Him. He's the God who chooses childless Abraham and Sarah to be the parents of millions. And He's the God who, although Joseph's brothers meant to kill, steal, and destroy, exalted Joseph to second in command of Egypt so that not only Israel might be saved, but Egypt as well. What this world and its pharaohs mean for evil, God will ultimately mean it for good. Truly, when we read that God desires not the death of sinners, we can see just how true that is. He is constantly and consistently bringing life where all we can conceive of in our worldly schemes is death. He'll surprise us with new life every time. And so after all else has failed, after His scheme to suppress the the Israelites and after His scheme to to have these midwives kill the boys, Pharaoh, who is an anti-God figure himself, riles up his entire nation, recruits everybody to slaughter every Hebrew boy that they see, to throw them into a watery grave in the Nile, a river that should be bringing only life and blessing will become a mass grave for Hebrew children. And it's from here, I believe, church, that we begin to see our own story come into focus. Our own story begin to emerge. Because as we go throughout this book and throughout this life, we'll find ourselves to be two kinds of people. On the one hand, we'll find ourselves to be oppressed just like the Israelites. But on the other hand, And if we're brutally honest, we'll find ourselves to be just like the oppressing Pharaoh. On the one hand, we're like the Israelites because life is harsh and bitter and cruel to us. We get fired. We get diseases. Our families fall apart. We lose our belongings. We find ourselves seemingly against the world with nobody in our corner. That's what life can feel like. That we are utterly oppressed. But in many other cases, if we're truthful, we find that we're just like Pharaoh making life harsh and bitter and cruel for others. We're the ones that break hearts, that cause pain, that abandon friends, that neglect family. We're the ones that build monuments to our own self and call it God. In either case, the story of Exodus is not... Contrary to to recent film depictions, it's not a story about the clash of equally matched pagan gods and wicked kings. It's the story of one God 
and one King who is always at work bringing life and love into a fallen world for people like us. And when we see that this King eventually Himself comes into our world not like Pharaoh, not high and mighty and exalted on a throne, but like a little Hebrew baby boy, lowly and gentle, that He may grow and serve and eventually die in the place of people like us. It's when we look to that Jesus, that King, and that God, we see what true power looks like. It's only when we see the great I Am become the meek and mild Jesus that we may hope that in Him one day all oppression against us and coming from us, all oppression may truly cease. Let's pray. Father, help us to follow the examples of Shifra and Puah. To fear You as King. The God who gives life and life abundant. And help us, Lord, to trust Jesus, our King of kings who exalts even lowly sinners like us. For it's in His name we now pray. Amen.